That's a great prayer to start off our family month. We are, we are still in Romans 14, though, for the whole month, and I'd like you to look there. I'm going to read verses 13 through 18, and we're going to um, sort of lay the foundation for our family month studies. So Romans chapter 14, verse 13, Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in your brother's way. As one who's in the Lord Jesus, I am fully convinced that no food is unclean in itself, but if anyone regards something as unclean, then for him it is unclean. If your brother's distressed by what, because of what you eat, you're no longer acting in love. Do not by your eating destroy your brother for whom Christ died. Do not allow what you consider good to be spoken of as evil, for, is the, king, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and approved by men. It's family month. Let me tell you a little story about my family growing up. I became a Christian five months before my brother died. His illness, my conversion, the conversion of my parents, they were all profoundly intertwined. The years that followed my brother's death were tough ones for our family, which was then just my mother, my dad, and me. I, I know it's got to be a terrible thing for a parent to lose a child. But their situation was complicated by the fact that um, my dad had gotten into an angry dispute with his union and had left it one month before my brother was diagnosed with leukemia. There were prolonged hospital stays, many of them. There were round after round of chemotherapy, and there were bills. There were lots of bills. And because Dad had left the union, there was no insurance. And so after my brother died, my dad took a second job at Rigid Tool and um, tried to use that to pay the bills, but he was working six days a week and most of the day 16 to 18 hours a day, and it was just too much for him. So my mother, who had been a stay-at-home mom, went to work, uh, a second shift at a factory about a block from our house. And my parents were also paying off a mortgage on a commercial building that my dad had recently built. And he'd been leasing it for a couple of years, and he desperately wanted to keep that building. His, his future financial hopes were pinned to it. But then my mother um, ruptured a disc in her back and had to leave work and undergo surgery. And so there was nothing left to do but to sell that building on which he had pinned his financial hopes. And it just killed him. One Saturday night during this time, my dad went out and he didn't come back. So about 1, 1.30 in the morning, I went out looking for him. So I'm 17 years old or something like that, checking out the parking lots of all the bars on the west side. My dad had quit drinking some years before, but my teenage instincts told me that's where I'd find him. I didn't, but only because I didn't look at the right bar. Uh, he came home about 2.30 in the morning, very drunk, and I was so angry at him. It felt like a betrayal of me, of my mother, and of the faith that we had confessed it was like we were headed back into the dark years again, the years before Jesus. That night damaged my relationship with my dad for years to come. Now, let me say this. I was an immature, judgmental, 
arrogant kid who lacked understanding and especially compassion. I had no idea, just no idea of the pressure my dad was under or of the pain that he felt. He'd lost his firstborn son, a blow I can only vaguely imagine. He was working outrageous hours trying to hold things together and watching his financial plans turn to dust all the same. And I heartlessly added to his pain by distancing myself from him and treating him with contempt. Though our relationship improved greatly over the years that followed, I never apologized to him. When I see my dad again, which I fully expect to do, I hope to rectify that. I was wrong. But so was he. He put a stumbling block in my way, this new faltering Christian. And the fact that I was his son made that worse. I tripped over that stumbling block and I fell flat on my face and it took me a long time to recover. Paul says in the verse I just read, verse 13, that we should make up our minds not to put a stumbling block or an obstacle in a fellow Christian's way. He's playing with words there. You could, in the Greek, you can see it. You could paraphrase it this way. If you want to judge something, because they were judging each other, right? If you want to judge something, make a judgment about this. Not to put a stumbling block or an obstacle in your Christian brother's way. Now, you might be wondering what this has to do with family month, since we're celebrating family month this February. I think that some of the most injurious stumbling blocks and obstacles a person ever encounters in his or her life are placed by family members. Parents or siblings or spouses, they put them in our way, and once we trip over them, loving God and trusting him and following his son Jesus becomes more difficult for us. Now, you may object that Paul's addressing believers in the church, not the home. And, of course, you're right. But I suggest Paul thought of the Christian home as an extension of the church and considered this instruction just as applicable to the home as to the church. If the church is an outpost of the kingdom that Paul's going to mention in verse 17, the home is where the men, women, and children of the outpost are deployed. If the local church is a kingdom platoon, the family is a kingdom squadron. It's tragic for church members to make it harder for each other to trust and love God, but that's doubly so when those church members belong to our own families. We're thinking this family month of the home as a manifestation of the kingdom of God, where verse 17, righteousness, peace, and joy are central. Over the next three weeks, we're going to look at each of those traits, these traits of the kingdom righteousness, and peace, and joy, and we're going to consider what we can do to see them flourish in our homes. The specific issue in Romans that lay behind what Paul writes here had to do with the observance of religious rules. There were two strongly held opinions in the Roman church which didn't agree at all and had become a source of ongoing tension between the people there. Some people had staked out their sides and nobody was backing down. One side believed strongly that the religious kosher laws with which they had grown up were binding on all Christians. If you were to eat food that wasn't kosher, especially the meat sold at the market, which may have come from an animal sacrificed to Saturn or to Portunus, you would dishonor God and injure yourself. So that was one side. The other side thought that was not only wrong, it was childish. 
Saturn and Portunus weren't real gods. By refusing to buy and eat meat sold at market, you were acting as if they were. You're keeping the myth alive. And that dishonors God and it hurts people. So that was the other side. For what it's worth, Paul came down strongly on the side of that second group. Even though he was a Jew and ate kosher food, he rejected the idea that meat sold at market was off limits because it may have, been, it may have come from a sacrificial animal. Saturn was not the king of the gods. The father of Jesus is the king of gods. Saturn's nothing at all, and Paul refused to act like he was. He says in verse 14, As one who's in the Lord Jesus, I'm fully convinced that no food is unclean in itself. The Greek's even stronger than that. I know and am convinced in or by the Lord Jesus. Paul may be referring to Jesus' own teaching about kosher foods. You can find part of that in Mark chapter 7. Paul is 100% sure that there was nothing wrong with eating food sold at market, even if it came from a sacrifice offered to a non-existent God. He's absolutely sure, but he turns right around and says, but if you grieve a fellow Christian by eating it, someone who thinks it's wrong and struggles over the fact that you're doing it, then you're acting unlovingly. Now, that's an issue that's probably hard for us to connect with emotionally. It's just not our issue. So imagine you were raised in a church where drinking alcohol was not only forbidden, but excoriated week by week from the pulpit. Pastor never misses an opportunity to blame the woes of the world on fermented drink. You know, if Hitler hadn't drank that first beer, there never would have been World War II. Or when Mao stands in judgment before God, he's going to have to answer for all that rice wine he drank, not for the 40 million people he had killed. Occasionally the pastor would joke, but you knew he was just half-joking, that everybody thinks the forbidden fruit in the Garden of Eden was an apple, but it was really a peach schnapps. That's what you hear, week after week after week. So you get older, you walk away from God for a while, decade or two, you do some drinking yourself, but eventually you come back to the church, and when you do, you stop drinking, and one night you're out with a pastor and his wife and two other couples. To your great surprise, four of these six people order alcoholic beverages with their meal. And you are shocked and emotionally torn. You like these people. Believe them to be loving, sincere followers of Jesus. But you just know that drinking alcohol is wrong. God hates it. Your feelings for these people, your estimation of them, suddenly turned upside down. That's the kind of thing that was going on in the Roman church. And if you stick to that illustration, it's as if Paul sides strongly with the people who have a glass of wine at dinner and then turns right around and tells them, but they should rather be lifelong teetotalers than grieve a Christian brother or sister by what they drink. Now, there is a hugely important issue here, one that applies to living the Christian life in the church and in the home. You can be right about an issue. I mean, completely perfectly right and still do wrong. You can do harm while you're being right. You can hurt people in the church and in your family. And on judgment day, God is not going to say, I'm so glad you were right about that issue. Deep down, that's what I really cared about. No, he'll say, I cared about your Christian brother, about your spouse, about your child. Why didn't you? 
You know, I've noticed that some people take a stand on almost everything. They're not just willing to die on one or two hills of essential Christian doctrine. They're willing to die on every hill. They've never met a doctrine that isn't essential as long as it's theirs. During the 1600s, you know what one of the raging controversies in the church was? It was whether preachers ought to wear vestments. The hill to die on for both sides was made out of linen and wool. The preacher's surplus and alb and cope. People were willing to split the church of God over the shape of a clerical collar. In Paul's day, it was about meat sacrifice to Saturn. In the Reformation, it was about the preacher's clothing. In our day, it's about church and state relations or women's roles or hymns and choruses. But see, in every day, there's always, always something. If you choose to take a stand on such things, take your stand. If you refuse to bend, refuse to bend. But don't hurt other people. Don't split the church of Christ. If you do, don't expect God will be saying on Judgment Day, I'm so glad you're on the right side of that whole political thing. Any more than he'll be telling some Puritan, bless you, you were right about those surpluses and albs. Never did like those. Verse 15 says, do not by your eating destroy your brother for whom Christ died. Now, listen to that. Do not by your eating destroy your brother for whom Christ died. Paul, isn't that a little overly dramatic? Destroy? You can destroy someone when you're the one who's right? Yes. You can do wrong even when you are right. Convictions that come from God strengthen you. They don't destroy your brother or sister. If they do, they're not godly convictions. They're personal crusades. And when that's the case, you know, it's really not going to matter much whether you're right or wrong. Now, I need to pause here to say something. I know someone will be thinking, but you got to stick to your guns. No, you have to stick to Jesus. You need to take a stand. Yes, you need to take a stand, but by God, take it right behind Jesus. Take your stand on the Lordship of Jesus. Stand on the Trinity. Stand on salvation by grace through faith. And say, here I stand, I can do no other. Those are hills to die on, but make sure you're the one doing the dying. Make sure you're not destroying your Christian brother or sister instead. How terrible a thing to destroy people over something like surpluses and albs. Look at the next verse, verse 16. Do not allow what you consider to be spoken of as evil. I don't like the way the NIV translates that. For one thing, the words what you consider are not in the original language at all. The Greek is something like, do not let your good be blasphemed. But it's in a different word order. Every commentator I know takes that verse to mean something like this. Don't cause people by your bad behavior, by your judgmental condemnation kind of stuff, to speak evil of the good thing you have, in this case, eating meat. I don't think that's what Paul had in mind. For one thing, it doesn't follow the argument. 
If that's what Paul means, he's taken a big U-turn. After saying, don't destroy your brother by eating meat, does he really turn right around and say, but stand up for what you believe in? Don't let anybody speak badly of your choice to eat meat. I don't think so. That is not at all where this was going. Besides that, it deviates from Paul's normal word usage. He uses the word translated good here, the word agathos. The name agatha means good. He uses that word 46 times in his letters, never once to indicate an acceptable personal choice like eating meat. He uses good to mean things like Christ-like, useful, helpful, just. I can't imagine Paul would call standing up for one's personal rights good. Then what is he speaking about when he speaks of your good in this verse? I think he's referring to the kingdom of God as manifested in their church. The word order in Greek places the word good at the very end of verse 15. In Greek, you can put words anywhere you want. And he puts the word good at the very end of verse 15, followed immediately by the word for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Good is the kingdom being expressed in Gentile and Jewish unity in Jesus. Good is sharing community with brothers and sisters for whom Christ died. Paul's plea is that they won't dishonor, Greek word blaspheme, the good thing that God is doing in their church by their treatment of one another. Now I want to suggest that's not just important in the Christian Church, it's important in the Christian home. God wants our homes to be safe havens, neighborhood, kingdom of God shelters, filled with righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. But that is dishonored when spouses are unloving to each other, when parents treat their children as nuisances, and children disrespect their parents. If our homes are to be outposts of the kingdom of God and places of righteousness, peace, and joy, we must stop putting stumbling blocks in our own living rooms for family members to trip over. What was the stumbling block in the Roman church? Was it meat sacrificed to Saturn? No, that was the issue. But it wasn't the stumbling block. The stumbling block was the contempt and condemnation going on in the church around that issue. We looked at that two weeks ago, by the way. And if you haven't heard that sermon, listen to it online or grab a CD before you leave. Do our homes manifest that kind of contempt and condemnation? I wish I could deny it, but I've already admitted that as a young Christian, I, turned, I treated my dad with contempt. And how do you think our new Christian home fared then as a kingdom outpost? Not very well. And it's not just kids treating parents with a lack of respect. It goes the other way, too. C.S. Lewis wrote, I have been far more impressed by the bad manners of parents to children than those of children to parents. Let that one sink in for a moment. Bad manners to children is a huge stumbling block that throws many of them off the path of following Christ. I have met them again and again and again. 
Married couples can put a stone of stumbling in each other's way by their lovelessness. There have been times when I have been so intent on winning an argument with my spouse that I have treated her with anger and condemnation. Where was the righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit then? One of the most common stumbling blocks in the home is hypocrisy. I was just talking to someone this week who told me about family members who act one way at their church, but they're, yeah, in the church on Sunday they're all smiles and, and prayers and praises, but act very differently the rest of the week. And that made me think of something a youth pastor once told me. We were driving somewhere in the car and talking, and he said he'd seen kids do really well who grew up in terrible households, in abusive, chaotic households. So they knew that is not what they wanted in their lives. And he'd seen kids do well who'd grown up with genuine, albeit imperfect, parents who were devoted to Christ. They knew that is what they wanted out of life. And then he said something like this, but I have never seen kids do well who grow up in a home where mom and dad say one thing but do another. Or one way on Sunday and a different way the rest of the week. He said those kids, they just don't know what to do with that. They just can't seem to figure it out. Hypocrisy is a terrible stumbling block. Another one has to do with related, has to do with appearances. A parent's rules are not based on the welfare of the child, but the reputation of the parent. You know, kids figure that out. A parent says, you're not going to do this, and the kid says, why? And the parent answers, because I told you so, because it's not a good idea, because we don't have time. But the real reason is the parent is afraid of what people will think. Look, if you don't want your kids to do something, you need to tell them why. And they'll get it. See, they may not like it, but they'll understand it because they know more about peer pressure than you do. But don't make stuff up. Remove the stumbling block. Another stumbling block one kids trip over frequently is the value stumbling block. When parents value success over service, career over kingdom, when they're willing to sacrifice relationships for the sake of real estate but are unwilling to sacrifice money for the sake of the church, their kids learn to put God first in their words, but they don't have any idea of how to do that in their lives. There are many such stumbling blocks in our homes. i just mention one more, because it's one that I've frequently seen in pastors' families. I once interviewed uh, PK's, preacher's kids, for an article. And to a person... They told me that they had all wandered, wandered from God for a while in early adulthood. These are pastors from our area who grew up in, in, as preacher's kids. They told me every, every one of them had wandered from God for a while in their early adulthood. And for most of them, the stumbling block was that preacher dad put ministry ahead of family. He's never there. He seemed to think that God would bless his ministry only if he sacrificed his children to it. You know, that doesn't just happen in preachers' families. Yes, your children should see you making sacrifices in order to serve God's church. In fact, it's absolutely critical they see you do that. But they mustn't be the ones you put on the altar. You sacrifice your favorite TV show, sacrifice the big game or your golf night, but don't sacrifice your kids. 
This family month is going to be a time for us to remove stumbling blocks from our marriages, our relationships with parents, our relationships with kids, so that our home may be a kingdom of God home, a place of righteousness, peace, and joy. Let's make up our minds not to put stumbling blocks in the way of our family members. And let's ask God to remove the ones that are already there. I'll give you a moment to do that. Let's pray. Lord, hear our prayers. Heal our families. And may your kingdom come. Amen. Let's stand together. Dan's going to come and lead us in the first verse of, of this song.